Welcome back to the Buddy Ruski Show. My guest today is Jed Byrne. Jed, thanks for being on the show today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Jed is a community developer based out of Raleigh. We've had a number of really interesting conversations. As you all know, following Buddy Ruski for however long you have, uh, I talk about development a lot. I think about it a lot. Um, and Jed has really opened my mind to the mechanics of development, um, how projects are put together, maybe some gaps, well, definitely some gaps in my knowledge around development. Uh, and so I, I definitely wanted to uh, talk about that uh, today because I think that uh, you all will get as much out of uh, this conversation as, as I have talking to Jed. Um, but also, uh, there are few, uh, seemingly few community developers in our midst, you know, when we think about development in the triangle, we often think about, you know, big business coming in and developing these huge high rises and, and what that means for our communities. Um, and so I think Jed brings a really interesting perspective being more uh, on the ground level uh, and being able to speak both as a developer and as a member of our community uh, of, of Raleigh and the triangle at large. And so uh, his perspective is really interesting and I'm excited to have him share that with us today. Uh, but first, as we do uh, with, with all the guests on the show, I'd love to, to rewind and, and kind of uh, start at the beginning. Uh, you were not uh, necessarily interested in development uh, from the jump. Your, your folks were not in development, uh, but you found your way into this, uh, into this industry. Uh, so I, I'd love to, to hear more about um, your, your upbringing and kind of how we make our way into, um, you know, the, the Jed burn that we have today. Um, so to start, uh, you mentioned in our pre-show call that you're from Maryland. Uh, for me, whenever I think of Maryland, I think of, of Baltimore and The Wire. I'm a huge fan of The Wire. Um, and one of the things, as I've rewatched it over time, thinking about The Wire, is it's as much a show about community development as it is crime. A lot of people think of the Wires being a big crime show, but it is a, a show about uh, development. Uh, how much growing up in Maryland as a young person were you thinking about development? Yeah, um, that's, that's a good question. And uh, when you sent me that email, I kind of chuckled to myself. So, so I grew up, um, I guess one place to start with the development conversation and as it goes to The Wire, I grew up in Baltimore County which is an interesting distinction um, in Maryland. Baltimore City, uh, the city of Baltimore, is separated from the county, and the county kind of surrounds the city. And so I did not know uh, much about that history or the dynamics of that. Um, but as I grew older and as I read more and learned more and got into the industry, there are a lot of, of heartbreaking and tragic and difficult conversations around why Baltimore City looks different from from a geog or you know from a demographic standpoint from a racial standpoint than Baltimore County so for people who can't I am Caucasian I'm I'm a white male um, you know so so where I grew up looked different than Baltimore City and and why is that you know it, it, it didn't it wasn't an accident um, there are uh, right a lot of, of, of laws and and um, hate and bigotry and lots of just very complicated, ugly things that cause that dynamic. And again, as a kid growing up, you don't think about that. Nobody really talks about it. 
Yeah, um, certainly not part of the com- the you know educational curriculum. No. Uh, red the idea of redlining yep. was something that I learned only a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, when we talk about the way that communities are structured and even uh, you know the racism that has um, you know sort of is is a part of the fabric of of our country. Unfortunately, um, yeah, something like redlining was never really a huge part of that. Um, but it is, it, you know, drives so much. I mean, land ownership mm-hmm. is a huge, huge part of uh, wealth, uh, you know, wealth developing yeah. uh, within a, a family and a community. And so, uh, yeah, it, it certainly um, could really section off uh, communities. 100%. 100%. And that's, I mean, so one thing, if, if folks haven't read, the book, The Color of Law, that's something. And and I read that, and and I'll get back to the kind of the backstory of Jed in a second, but, you know, that book speaks specifically to the racial segregation in Baltimore. And so, like, I'm reading the book, and I was like, oh, man, ouch. Like, I, you know, I, I feel that directly. And again, and by no means as directly as the families and history that that I had it I, w- I had it pretty good, right? And there, there's a lot of people that felt the negative aspects of that. But you can see it, and it's talked directly in the book. And then, you know, I went to Clemson University. The book talks about Clemson University. Uh, I'm a big I'm a big member or big advocate for Urban Land Institute. You know, the, the Color of Law talks about ULI. And it's just, it's um, not that I felt like attacked, but it was interesting just to see how my history, you, it's, it's just on, you know, every other page. And it was not something that was talked about. Nobody, you know, nobody at ULI talks about that. Nobody in Baltimore County City talks about it. Maybe they do now. I've been gone for 18, 20 years. But um, it's interesting that it's land use is something. And as it pertains to the wire, right, is, is the wire a, a crime or, you know, gang or drugs show? Maybe. But I, and, and I'm biased in that land use is my profession. So I think about land use all the time. But I can draw connections and correlations in, in most things in life to land use choices, regulation, policy, um, it's not always the cause, but you can see direct connections in a lot of things. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about it because it's so important. It's all around us. I mean, it's, we're in a building now, right? Like, so, so the, re, the way we can record this is because somebody at some point had an idea to build a building and, you know, that building had a basement and here we are, you know, recording in this studio. So there, there's land use and development interwoven, I think, throughout almost everything in life. And so that, but that was a new uh, discovery to me and it, it took time. When I was growing up, um, originally, you know, in high school, I was, I was more interested in business. So my, so my first real interaction with development was I have an uncle who is a developer in Baltimore and Florida. And I, I didn't really know that uh, at the time. I don't, I just th- always thought of him as being in business. He was a businessman. I always thought that was interesting and exciting. So when I was in high school, I said, well, I'm going to go into business. That just seems, you know, like a reasonable thing to do. I had no idea what that really meant. Um, and so I'd applied to all these colleges where they had business programs and, um, but again, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then very late in my senior year, completely changed gears and said, well, actually I like, um, taking things apart and figuring things out. So maybe I want to be an engineer and, and I'm, you may know this about me, but I'm severely ADHD. So like attention and excitement and also I'm all over the place. So it's not surprising to me looking back that I did a complete 180. But so I went to Clemson University for mechanical engineering, studied that, thought I was going to be interested in the automotive engineering program, um, changed gears again um, into more of a 
just kind of general mechanical curriculum and they let you choose. And so I thought in my mind, again, I don't really know what I want to do, but mechanical engineering is fairly broad. And so if I graduate with a mechanical engineering degree, there's a lot of things I can do. You know, it, it can't be a bad thing. Um, graduated, went to work for a company that was in the oil and gas EPC, which is engineering, procurement and construction industry. So we built and designed uh, storage tanks. And so we were building these really large scale. Like if you drive through Greensboro, you see the big oil um, terminals. We built tanks like that and water towers. And so we spent about five years in that career, moving all over the country. And so I got to experience a whole bunch of different communities, again, from living in one place most of my life for the first 18 years to going to South Carolina, um, which was different from where I grew up, uh, to, to moving to Houston, to moving to California in the Bay Area, moving back to Houston. I lived in Aruba for a little bit. Um, but so I got to see different places, ultimately wound up in Atlanta. And again, so kind of the wheels started turning and I guess we're like getting kind of cranked up about land use and development while I was moving around. The other thing, to go completely back to my childhood for development for me, one of the kind of seminal moments was when I was a kid in Baltimore City, there was an old, I want to say it was like a fish cannery, some sort of fish processing plant that was right downtown. Um, and and they were, I guess the city or the county, somebody... The, the city, I suppose, bought it, and they were going to change it into, redevelop it into the Children's Museum. So think kind of like marbles in Raleigh. Um, and I actually had the chance through through my parents of doing a tour when it was still under construction. So I would go into this building, and you know, there's 60-foot ceilings and big old windows and brick and concrete and steel columns and just you know, kind of this big old 150-year-old building. Um, and it was just cool. And I just remember walking in, and I was probably 10, and looking around, and, and the guy who was giving us the tour said, well, here's going to be this piece, and there's going to be this big slide coming down, and you know all these different, and, and you could just see their passion for the future and this kind of vision, and, and there was nothing there yet. I mean, there, well, there was. There was the building, but there, you know, none of those things existed yet. And so seeing that, and then coming back a year later and going through the museum, and all the things that they talked about were there. You know? And so you could see somebody you know you take this this asset which is a building which is a piece of land which is history which is the surroundings all the context everything that goes along with that building hopefully everything if you do it right everything or most things um but you take those assets and then you add some stuff and some effort and some finance and all these different components to it and a vision and then you come out with something different and hopefully better and again that to me is kind of the developer's story is and I know developer we've talked about this as you know a dirty word in a lot of conversations but it is the the kind of hub of the wheel you know they, they don't do any one thing particularly well but they got to do everything a little bit and you got to have a vision you got to have access to capital you got to have experts on your team you, you know you have to have all these bits and pieces um, but that to me is it is is taking something adding something to it and coming out with something different. And so those were kind of the two, my, both my uncle and the, the Children's Museum story were kind of early sparks in my development career. But after being out of school for a few years, I realized, you know, I like construction. I like building things. When I would travel for work, I could look out the window of a plane and, you know, somebody says, well, you know, you sell water towers. What's that all about? And so I could point out the window and say, well, there's like 12 water towers. You know, most people don't think about water, or water towers or infrastructure. Um, and say, well, you know, water towers aren't that big of a deal. And I'm like, look, you can see them. They're all over the place. So I like that, that you can do something and point to it. I like that it's going to be around a long time. I like working with people and solving problems. I just didn't like tanks. Um, and so ultimately, 
I got interested and introduced to the business school at UNC, where uh, in the MBA program, they have a concentration in real estate development and finance. And so went that route, came out um, and worked in multifamily development in Charlotte, worked in office finance and development up here in Raleigh, um, worked in mixed use development, now currently work for an engineering firm. So I, I feel like I've touched a lot of the different bases of, and even and, and taught at UNC, the online MBA program for a little bit. Um, so through all that, learned about land use, learned about the product, like learned kind of how it happens. And in that, I, I became more educated about it. But you also see that there's, there's a few people who know a lot about it and understand how it works. And it's very complicated. It's not, I don't think it's um, difficult. You know, like I think of inventing new things is, is difficult and curing cancer is difficult. You know, land use and construction and development is not difficult, but it's very complicated. And so there, there aren't a ton of people who understand all of those complications. And so as I've discovered that, I became more interested in not only doing the things, but helping people understand those things. And I think that's where you and I started conversations because, again, I think of as a community, if we all understand what's going on and how the things work, we can work together to, to make the outcomes better. And again, I, I think none of us are as smart as all of us. I don't think I'm terribly smart. Uh, you know, a lot of developers I know aren't terribly smart. They just sit in a position where they understand how things work. And so again, it, it's, it's, it's just complicated. And because land use touches everything and is everywhere, um, you know, when I build a building here or somebody builds this building here, I mean, that one, that means that nothing else is gonna be here for 100 years, hopefully. Um, depending on how the development goes, you know, but it's permanent and it has externalities that are positive and negative. And I, and I believe firmly in the positive externalities of development, um, but there are very real negative externalities. And so if I do something and it impacts you, if you and I can work together to have a better outcome, it's better for you and it's better for me. And um, I think development in a nutshell is all about creating value. And so part of that's financial value, but part of that's also, I think, heavily community driven value. Um, sorry. So that's why I'm super passionate about having these conversations. If anybody ever has questions about development or how it works, um, I love talking about it. So um, yeah, yeah, I, think, really I think that maybe answers part of your story. Oh, no, the one thing, back to the wire. So, um, and remind me, who is the uh, character that you reference? Uh, Stringer. Stringer. Oh, yeah, Idris Elba's character. Um, I don't want to do spoiler alerts. I feel like we're past that. So I won't say, I think it doesn't end up super well for him, if I recall. It does not. Okay, so it doesn't end up super well for him. But right, there, there is that story. And I think that, that as, as people you know, are, invest in a community, I think that's one angle that often, if you have the, the ability to do so, is investing in real estate. And so some people do that on a commercial level or on a larger scale. A lot of people do it on a personal level and buying a home. And again, there, there's intricacies and complications with that and... Um, as a community, as we have these discussions, you know, back to the externalities, you know, the decisions we make at a community level could impact home values. And in a world where the average homeowner, and I'm making this up, but say has 50% of their personal wealth tied up in the value of their home, when you start fiddling with that equation, people get real antsy. Um, and it gets complicated and people get angry and, um, the impacts are real, um, and it's it's complicated. And so, I, again, I just I love participating in those conversations. I think the more we can do that as a community, the better off we're going to be. 
Yeah, he. <laughs> it's interesting because, and we can hop off the wire train here in a second. But the reason I brought it up is because he, you know, as a person participating in the drug game, mm-hmm. uses real estate or sees real estate as an opportunity to move out of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he ends up going to community college to take these business courses. They start, or his aspiration for his crew is to start sort of moving some of that drug money into real estate so that they can move into a quote unquote clean business, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and start to build wealth in, in that regard. And, and real estate and development is the way that he sees that they're gonna be able to build that wealth in a way that's sustainable. So it's, it's interesting that's, um, you know, one of the ways that uh, that I think the wire kind of speaks to that dynamic, yeah. the developer dynamic. Um, well, it's, it's 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 cash flow. I mean, it's it's you're investing in an asset, and there's lots of ways to do that. You know, stock market that you can invest in many assets that produce value over time. And so, right, if you invest a chunk of money up front and it pays back a percentage of that over time. You know, right. So, so if market conditions change, whether you're Stringer or somebody else, you know, you have this thing that's working on your behalf. Um, that can be a, a financially positive thing, and it's it's just again, it's 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 a, a story as old as time. But um, that again, I think people, I think most people, and nor should they, but understand the financial implications of that, how that works, how people invest in real estate, what are people's options. Um, and then how those choices impact community because they do. You mentioned going to Clemson for mechanical engineering, um, but both your parents and your sister, if I'm not mistaken, were dentists. Yeah. Um, did you ever consider dentistry no. uh, as a profession? You were never sort of drawn to that. No, I, I, I think your, your question was it's not it was it was dentistry not good enough? So yeah, so I come from a very dental heavy family, um, which is fine. And no, I, I just never. I never thought about it. It was not an anti thing, but again, um, you know, I had the option to go off and explore what I wanted to study. And so I did. And that was for whatever reason was never interesting to me. Um, in hindsight, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And still, I mean, I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do until I went to grad school. Cause I remember going in thinking, well, shoot, if this development thing doesn't work out or it's just not what I want to do, or it's not where my passion is or I'm not good at it. Um, you know, again, having having a business degree and an engineering degree, like there are worse problems in the world, and and so I, I think I for a long part of my life, and still to this day, I I think kind of divergently, and I try to give myself as many options as possible. Um, and now I think I'm I'm trying to hopefully converge again onto something because again, we it's you know I've got limited resources and and time and money and everything that I do has an opportunity cost. So how can I make sure I'm focused somewhat? for a super ADHD person to um, hopefully, I don't know, have some sort of impact in this life. You talked uh, about the different traveling you did early in your career, going out to the Bay, to Houston, mm-hmm. uh, to Atlanta. What did you see being in those different areas uh, and how they were tackling this problem of development and building communities? And what did you take from that as you uh, moved through your career? So, um, yeah, I've had the opportunity to, to travel and live in different markets. I've had the opportunity to travel overseas, um, and see different cities. And I think one of the things that's most interesting to me is not really a development observation, but more like a psychology Mm -hmm. of things where, you know, 
people in Atlanta complain about traffic all the time in Houston. And like we, I would regular when I lived in Houston, I would regularly drive to visit friends on the other side of town, and that's sixty miles. And it takes forever and a day to get there. And I was like, no sweat. That's just what you did. That was the culture. Like everybody's used to driving everywhere. Um, and I don't know that people really stop and think like, well, why? Why is it that, you know, Houston is so wide and vast um, and that the, my only option is to get in a car and drive to the other side of town and the other side of town being an hour. I mean, when I was in, in Maryland, if I drove an hour north or south, I was in different states. I mean, you know, it, it's it's crazy. I, I don't think people stop and think about these decisions and implications. And, and it almost seems like everybody feels victim to the, the decisions that are made out there. Like it just, it happens. But as a community, we're all partially responsible. You know, it's like when we drive around Raleigh or into Durham or wherever, you know, people complain about traffic. Like, well, I'm in the car. I am traffic. Like that's, you know, I, I got to claim some responsibility for that. Um, or if we don't, if, if we complain about traffic, but don't invest in things to mitigate traffic or an alternate to traffic, you know, nothing changes. Um, there are lots of conversations about density and changing of land use and zoning and all these different things. And, and it's just, um, again, I try to, my personal stance, although I have opinions and as you know, I'm happy to share them. When I'm, when I'm engaging with people, I try not to tell people what I think is right because, in my opinion, it's kind of irrelevant. You know, I, I would much rather hear what you think so that I can learn from you and so I can get your perspective and I can understand that and kind of – I like collecting information and learning. And so that's super valuable to me. It's just, hey, what do you think about this thing um, so I can understand what you think? But, you know, there are plenty of people out there that would be opposed to, you know, commercial uses – coming into their neighborhood and being allowed in their neighborhood. And you say, well, you know, it could be, it could be a, a, you know, cigarette store or some other, you know, vice or something, something that we don't want. But when you go on vacation to Savannah or Charleston or some other place and you're like, oh my gosh, we left the hotel and we walked down the street and there's this cute little coffee shop and I just loved it. And the owner was a local and we talked, you know, and it was so great. Or, you know, we got there and we just, you know, we, we hopped on the bus or the train and we got around everywhere and it was just, it was so wonderful. And then you come home and you just like forget like all of those things that you enjoyed. And you're like, no, I'm not going to give up my parking space. And no, I don't want to, you know, there's, there's traffic on this road. So we've got to expand it. And it's just the psychological, psychological dynamics of land use, I think are fascinating. And I don't have an answer. I wish I did. But when you talk to people and hear what they value and what they theoretically want and then you see the decisions that we make as individuals including myself I mean I drove here like I'm not I'm not going to tell you um, and we've had conversations about biking and transportation um, but I drove from Raleigh to Durham because it was 45 minutes technically I came from Clayton so I came far away but you know I drove here because to take a bus or a train would be I don't know hours it just it wouldn't happen I couldn't I could not sit here if that was my option and so I think it's, it's um, the, the big takeaway, and it's, it's as true here as any other market I've ever been in, is there seems to be a big disconnect in between what people say they want and think they want and value and then how they act. And I think that's true in all sorts of things. That's true in personal health. That's true in finance. I mean, it's, it's just, I guess it's human nature. Um, but it is very interesting to hear those conversations. And I think, one of the, again, one of the things I'm really passionate about is helping people understand um, 
and answer questions that they may have and, and have those conversations because I think it's all around us and we become kind of blind to it. Um, but it's little things like sidewalks and benches and you know shady spots in the sun and plazas and all these different things. And again, allowing uh, you know commercial use in a residential neighborhood, yeah, it could be you know some store that you don't like. You know, it could be a I don't know a record shop. But again, if you say you, it can't, if you, if you take off the table the possibility that it can be a record shop or a vape shop or something that you and I get nothing wrong with record shops, but like vape shops or, or something just that is a negative, you're also taking off the table. A lot of other options. I mean, there's a lot of things that come along with that exclusion, um, and that's a topic we can talk about. But you know, we, in zoning, I think we've gone a long way for a long time, for a hundred years, of, of zoning by exclusion and exclusionary zoning and in, inclusionary zoning. I n c well, I n inclusion. I'm not going to spell it. inclusionary zoning. I think is becoming a more hot topic these days as affordability has has just peaked into being atrocious um, in Durham and Raleigh and, and lots of places in North Carolina. But one of the things I think most people don't think about is like, yes, inclusion, bringing things into the fold is, is a good choice. But also, what have, we, what have we done? What have we excluded for 100 years? And, and what are the impacts that those choices have had? Um, I think matter probably more. And again, it, I'm, far be it for me to convince someone or tell somebody what to do. But I, I like having those conversations. So you think about it and you decide, okay, no, I, I, I like this. I like you know, everybody getting an acre all to themselves. And that's the only choice, and that's fine. But that has uh, impacts, and that has future states. And if you're not also fine with those future states, then we should reconsider or think about that. Yeah, th- the point about the it not being what you observe not being necessarily about development, but psychology is really interesting because a lot of that gets baked into the culture of a place in a way that it's so hard to pull out of that um, and those choices that communities make that governments make mm-hmm. they start to stack on top of each other and if you try to pull one out you know the whole Jenga tower falls apart and so it, it just becomes part of that area you know you yeah. think about LA or Houston uh, Atlanta you know my dad lives down there and and yeah it's like such a pain to get anywhere because you're just stuck in a car and it, you know, it has climate implications. It has uh, like psychological implications in terms of stress. Yeah. Like people are not, no one is thrilled to be in traffic, but to your point, we also don't really make choices then to mitigate that mm-hmm. or to change that behavior because it becomes so a part of what we think our community is. Yeah. And breaking from that is is really difficult and and I wonder you know I, I do think conversations like this and just more conversations in our community are important so that people have an understanding of how things get built how communities are created um, to your point like if you take things off the table or put them on the table what ripple effects those have and and being really honest about it yeah. um, that is really uh, a way for us to, rethink our communities at this very pivotal point, particularly here in the triangle with affordability, uh, with climate implications. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it is, um, you know, human nature is a very strange thing, uh, and hard to, uh, assess sometimes, but yeah, it will take us sort of coming together and rethinking how we want to 
you know, piece together yeah. our communities. I mean, I think it, I think it takes leadership, um, which is challenging, right? Because there, there's one aspect of it where it's community leadership, where the community gets together and says, this is what we want. We want these things. Because again, I, I don't think any of these problems are impossible or, or even they're difficult for sure. They're complicated, but they're not super, super hard. Like we understand how to get, you know, 10,000 people an hour moving along a path from here to there. I mean, there, there are plenty of places, and I may be, I'm making that math up, but like lots of, if you want to move a lot of people from one place to another, there are solutions out there. We are, and we are far, at least here in the triangle, far from hitting those limits. Like there are places where you're hitting the limit. Uh, we're not near the limits. Um, and so, so I think it takes leadership either, either from, or hopefully in concert, the community or elected officials or, or corporate, you know, it takes somebody stepping out and there's a, there's a chicken and the egg problem too, especially when it comes to transportation or land use in general, where it's like, well, if, if, if we invest heavily in buses, well, no one's riding the buses. Well, is nobody riding the buses? And I say no one, it's, it's not no one. There are plenty of people that ride the buses and buses are extremely important, but I think people often balk at investing in something for the future when the use isn't there yet or bike lanes, right? Like, well, I see bike lanes, they're empty all the time. You know, why are we, why are we building more bike lanes? It's like, well, maybe nobody rides on your bike lane because it's a 45 mile an hour bike lane and or 45 mile an hour road. And, and you're riding on that road as a bike, as a squishy person, um, you know, maybe there's that. And, and so it's, there's chicken and the egg. There's definitely that. There's, you know, there, <laughs> there's, there's chicken and the that. egg problems. And again, that's a simple thing. It's like, hey, listen, let's let's get people out on bikes and ride on our infrastructure. And then you come and tell me, is that something you want to experience? And if the answer is yes, great, go for it. Let's roll. But if it's not, what can we do about it? Um, and then you you mentioned Jenga. I think a lot about like Kerplunk, which I think it's Kerplunk. But it's the tube where you stick all the little kind of needles through and then you have the marbles on the top. And so again, like the, the marbles can get by one you know, plastic noodle or needle or, you know, piece of spaghetti, no problem. But you add 50 and they stop. And so again, all these things, all of these um, choices that we make in and of themselves probably don't have huge implications. Um, and we started off a color of law. So like there are definitely choices that, that people have made and can make and threaten to make and may make that have direct and huge implications. But a lot of stuff doesn't. But it, it adds up over time to, to stress the system in a negative way, or it adds up over time to benefit a system in a positive way. And so, again, that to me, that's, that's the crux. Is like, if everybody understands all those things, then great. We solve that problem. Um, I just don't think we're there yet. And so that's, that's, I don't know, maybe I can help explain or have those conversations or ask those questions. Because um, from what I've seen, yeah, we're, we're not there yet. I want to take a quick break, and then we'll come right back. What's up, everyone? Popping in to say that if you haven't already, subscribe to the Buddy Ruski newsletter. Not only will you get alerted when new episodes drop, but you'll stay up to date on all things Buddy Ruski, including new content on the blog, upcoming projects, and more. You can subscribe at BuddyRuski.com. Also, if you have feedback about the show or anything else you'd like to share, stories you're interested in, or people you think I should interview, my inbox is open. You can email me at Justin at BuddyRuski.com. All right. Back to the episode. So earlier when you were breezing through your bio, you mentioned that you graduated from Clemson in 2007. Uh, right around that same time, as everyone knows, there was a huge housing crisis uh, that you know, crippled a lot of families, uh, sort of just like, yeah, crashed through our economy, our communities. Um, did that in any way shape your 
uh, the direction of your career or even people you know in your orbit that were also thinking about real estate development, engineering, were there a lot of folks that were like, ooh, maybe not uh, real estate right yeah. now. Maybe I'm going to rethink my you know, post-college plans. No, so so it it did and it didn't. Um, the most direct impact that it had that I remember was when I was working for my first company out of undergrad. Um, so I graduated before the recession, and then my first time back to Clemson after graduating was to recruit the following year for people in my same, you know, the same position that I'd been hired for. And I remember coming across somebody who on paper – had all the same credentials, I mean, to a T, same internship, same, you know, same uh, degree, better grades, and better um, experience because their parents grew up in the industry or, like, worked in the industry. You know, my parents are dentists. Their parents were in the industry that we worked in. So, like, they had been through, you know, all these international movings and, and working in Saudi Arabia for the refineries, and do, you know, all this stuff that I had just no exposure to. And ultimately, I mean, again, a... a better qualified person did not get not only didn't get a job but didn't get an interview offer and the only difference was time i mean and i I will never forget that if i had graduated one year later i would not have gotten the job that i got and again it wasn't in real estate but um no I, i was that was um very obvious to me and what that did though in the land use industry is there were plenty of people that came out with civil engineering degrees and finance degrees and that would have gone to work for home builders or or in the trades you know you saw a lot of people who were in construction who were in design that that got laid off i mean the the, the development activity just stopped i mean it, it didn't trickle it just went to zero and there was there was it was awful and so a lot of people lost their jobs, lost their homes. I mean, it, it was catastrophic economically and professionally, and so they just didn't come back. And so what you're seeing now, and again, this isn't directly related to me, but I'm in this weird kind of in-between where now in the development and land use space, their their architecture firms are looking for architects with 10 years of experience who graduated in 2008, and they're just few and far between. 2009, I mean, the kind of eight through... 12, 13 timeframe, those five years, yeah, a lot of people were like, ooh, I wanted to, do, I wanted to go do that thing, but I'm not going to, that seems like a really bad idea. So there was just, um, what's the opposite of glut? Uh, dirt? Drought, I guess. Drought, yeah. yeah. So there's a drought in, in the professions and in the trades. And again, that's a lot of what you're seeing now is there, there's all this demand and, and there's just there isn't enough capacity to build the buildings, to make the things, to design the thing. I mean, it's just um, it's crazy again how everything is connected. And again, if, it, if nothing else, as humans, everything we do is all interconnected. But um, that is interesting to me. So it, it didn't really impact directly my desire, um, but I think it's definitely part of my story. And as I was out there. I mean, really, I could see both the positive and negative impacts of the built environment as I got more exposure to that. Again, it's just it's I've never figured out a better way to describe it other than buildings are cool, you know, and like, again, we're we're sitting in this studio that someone had an idea. Right. And and someone years and years ago had an idea to build some walls and, and to, you know, invest in this location. And because of this kind of cascade of ideas and visions and investments and all this stuff, all these actions lead us up to here. That's just cool. I mean, and it's fun and, and having some teeny tiny little part in that, um, is fascinating. And again, I I think as individuals, you can have direct impact, but, um, 
part of the reason why I like having these conversations and talking to people is because I think that scales a little bit better. You can have you can have you know multiple conversations a day, or you can have a podcast and, and a bunch of people can listen to it, um, or a bunch of people can ask questions and engage. And I think that really is where kind of the rubber meets the road. And I know you you graduated from Clemson with a degree in mechanical engineering in 2007, and then five years later, you know, made your way into uh, you know, real estate finance and development as mm-hmm. a graduate student at UNC. Was there something within those five years that changed that you observed that made you, you know, reconsider, you know, entering that discipline uh, as opposed to just staying on the mechanical yeah. engineering route? Yeah. So, so what it was was I I realized you know I I had the the privilege of moving all over the country and I was in a rotational training program. So for the first two and a half years, I had, I don't know, five or six different jobs. And so I got to try marketing. I got to try construction. I got to try operations. I got to try business development and, you know, um, communications. I mean, I did, did all these different things. And so I started uh, kind of looking at my career and skills and what I enjoyed doing and realized that the missing piece was buildings, right? So I like talking to people. I like solving problems. I like building things. I like working on, on complicated issues and, you know, working on something tangible, like, like building things, like whether it's a little thing like a podcast or, or writing or an article or, you know, I used to brew beer in college, like cracking open a beer, or just doing something that you made and giving it to somebody and seeing that kind of transfer of value of like, I tried to do this thing. Again, I had a vision to do this thing and it's, it's silly, it's beer, but like that was one of the first starts of that where like you can, have an idea and study and try and design and, and, you know, get feedback and iterate and do all these different things. And then you literally have this thing that you give to somebody else, something tactile, something tactile. And they, you know, in beer, it's, they take a sip and sometimes they say, man, that's really good. Sometimes they say it's awful, but like that whole experience of building something from an idea to something tactile is huge to me. And so when I was in the tank business, the only box that wasn't checked was the buildings piece, you know, cause at the end of the day, it was all those things for water towers or all of those things for a tank and a refinery. And, um, to me, buildings just seem more exciting. And so I had the opportunity to go to business school and in that I knew I'd be able to do an internship for the summer and try it out. And again, if, if all else failed, you know, I have, I'd have options, but, um, I'd be able to learn and grow and build a network and, you know, be around really smart people and have access to really smart people. Um, and ask my questions and and then try it and that was huge and so that's kind of what made the transition um, and then kind of once I got the once I got the taste of it uh, there's no looking back. You mentioned that there's this drought of folks partly because of the housing crisis being in this industry and I wonder too talking about building tactile things. There's also this in the early late 2000s early 2010s this resurgence of the startup and particularly mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the software tech startup mm-hmm. and i wonder how many of those folks as opposed to getting into more tactile engineering yeah. positions saw the growth opportunity uh, financially um, and, and also just thinking about like you know tech was a very cool new thing for people to be uh, a part of at that time and i wonder how much that industry siphoned off folks who would have otherwise become 
mechanical engineers yeah. as opposed to software developers or something like that? So I, I think that's, that's a great question. I don't know that I've ever thought about it in a tech versus development conversation, but I think it's directly applicable. I think what you see there is not so much a, a positive pull where that certainly happens, right? So you, you're in high school and you're saying, oh, well, I can... I can learn Java and someone's going to pay me $200,000 a year. Like that sounds pretty cool. I can get online or, you know, I can download a pirated copy of whatever software and, you know, all right. So I don't know that it was, it was a pull where that was certainly part of it. I think a big piece of it. And again, in understanding the complexity of the systems that we've created, I think a huge piece of it was really a push away. The development industry and land use, um, the barriers to entry are started off kind of high. I mean, it's a capital intense you know, Stringer Bell is a good example, right? So like he didn't, he didn't start getting into development when he had a hundred bucks or 200, you know, it was like, okay, well I can, I can give you a duffel bag full of cash and we can make something happen. Um, so the barriers, you know, we're talking about buildings and, but even a house a, a, in the smallest unit, the cost, the financial cost is pretty high. I mean, you're starting off in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, a six figure barrier to entry. I think if, if coding had a six-figure barrier to entry, I think you would see far fewer people in coding. I, I don't think you'd be able to have a coding camp where all you need is, you know, laptops and access to the internet and one person to teach 50 people. I mean, I think the barriers to entry started off high, and I think they're getting higher. I think the complications, the regulation, the, you know, people in America want to sue everybody and, and um, the barriers to entry are getting higher. And so I think what you're seeing is, is a, and I have no science to back this up, but I'd be willing to bet the percentage of development or land use investment that goes through entrepreneurial, small scale, incremental developers has shrunk vastly over time. And again, I don't think anybody went out and said, oh, I want to live in a world where only the biggest developers can do this work. You know, but in Durham, I mean, this is a great example. You walk down these streets, a lot of these buildings were were smaller buildings, Main Street buildings, and they were built by, oh, the doctor, you know, wanted a place to build his practice, or or the the banker knew somebody invested, or somebody, you know, built a a duplex or a quadruplex home down the street, and it was four homes in one, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I Durham, in, in particular, you know, has a Black Wall Street, uh, you know, history of particularly, you know, black entrepreneurs doing exactly that, uh, being able to come and build entire ecosystems mm -hmm. of commerce uh, with their own capital. Mm -hmm. And you're right that most of the stuff that's coming online now is, you know, are, are bigger firms, uh, not a lot of local entrepreneurs yeah. are, are putting those together. And, th and that goes back to, I mean, we talked about the psychology of people you know, people say, well, I, you know, shoot, I, I'm so sick and tired of Starbucks being the only place to get a cup of coffee. I wish there was more, you know, BU cafes of the world. And um, I don't like talking in specific, so I'll, I'll take that back. But like, I'd be willing to bet if you talk to most small business owners, uh, it's really hard for them to own their space. It's really hard. I mean, you know, one of the examples that I'll, ta I'll talk specifically to something I experienced is we were working on a development and, and during the approval process to get our plans approved, we went from not, it's screening around the rooftop mechanical units, so the big air conditioning units on top of the building. When we, were, we submitted our plans, that said, you don't need the screening. And we said, great. We went on. 
and then later came back and said, well, you do need the screening. So that doesn't sound like much, but that one change was $60,000. And so if you are a small-scale entrepreneur and you're just starting off and you're trying to stand up a little business um, and there's this option of like the swing financially being to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars, and that's one little element of, of a very large process, you know, if, you, if there's those types of swings, it's almost impossible and, and the, the implications on development because, and this is one aspect that I don't think, and we, maybe, this, maybe this was one of your questions, I think it probably was, but which I wish people more understood, it was the risk component of development. It's extraordinarily risky. And it's because of, of debt and leverage and kind of how the financial structures work. You know, if you're a small-scale business, if you and I start a business and we want to go out and build a little office building or a little retail store for ourselves – Again, if we go get the financing and we talk to all our friends and family and we raise, you know, $200,000 and the bank gives us $800,000 and we've got a million dollars, but then there's this $50,000 bust that we don't see coming, that's coming out of you and me. And then $50,000 on a million doesn't seem like much, but $50,000 on the fact that we had to raise $200,000, that's a 25% swing. And oh, by the way, we only had $10,000 to start with. And all of our investors are going to say, well, I'm not paying that. You know, right. You're the developer. You were supposed to know about these things. You're going to have to come up with the 50. And I don't have it. So now my project fails and I've signed a guarantee. And you and I, who wanted to, you know, we wanted to start our retail dreams, we're bankrupt. And, and it's over. And so we're going to go around and we're going to tell our friends, hey, man, listen, you, know, you want to come to, to our town and do development and then start your own thing and be entrepreneurial. It's tough. It's rough. You know, it's not worth the risk. And, and that just stops people from doing it. So, again, I think that's the push that you see. And if, if it were and, – and I don't know that it needs to be super easy because, again, the externalities are very real. Um, and, and there's externalities in tech, right, if you and I invent some software that can hurt a bunch of people. Um, it's been done. It has been done. But, but I, th I think what you're seeing there, back to the tech, and I think that's a great question. I'm going to have to think a lot more about that, is, is the barriers to entry are high and getting higher, and the barriers to entry in technology are just so low. I mean, again, you and I are sitting here with you know, a couple hundred dollars in equipment and can make this thing that goes out to you know, the world. That's amazing. Um, I wish, wish, wish. And again, there, there are solutions. Like there, there, are, there are places where the barriers are smaller and there are incremental developers out there that are getting it done. But the friction is so high and the risk is so high that a lot of people, if given an option to do anything else, are choosing that. And so then again, that's where you're saying, if, if, you're, if you wish there were more local shops as a community and you're not cheering and, you know... Investing. Invest, in well, and, and or again, not, not to say you have to write the check, but if you're not talking to your elected officials and say, what are we doing to make it easier for Justin to open up a store? I like Justin. Justin's awesome. He's got these cool ideas. What are we making it? I want to see more Justins of the world on Main Street. What are we doing to make that feasible? Um, and because right now it's, it's in a lot of places, it's, oh, Justin has access or, you know, his family had this building and he wants to open up a store, but it was, you know, a warehouse. And if you're going to change it from a warehouse to a store, it means you're going to have to add 15 parking spaces. And Justin says, well, my, my parcel doesn't have room for parking space. So that's fine. Just tear down half the building. And you're like, well, I don't want to do that. Like, this, you know, I want to keep the, old, the original building, and I just want to open a store. And I'm sorry, that's the rule. The rule is the rule. You have to have parking. And so um, it's And that kind of like goes to the externalities, too, because if you, you know, not only is, are the rules telling you you have to have parking, but potentially the, like, culture of the city is telling you we want parking. We, we 
are accustomed to being able to drive into downtown and parking right on the right. road in front of your business. And so, um, yeah, that it is, uh, the barriers to entry, I think is a really good, uh, point and to just push to, Yeah. To think about, um, I'd love to, and I know I realize during this conversation that there are so many aspects of development, but I think it would be interesting to give sort of a high level overview of the development process. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you and I are going to open that, uh, you know, that dream shop that we've been talking about for weeks, uh, what are the, what are the steps that go into making that happen from, you know, we see a, a plot of land that we're interested in to, you know, we're open on Monday for business. What does that look like? Slightly, slightly longer than that. But I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of steps to the process. It can go many different ways, but I think, you know, it, it always starts with a vision. I mean, no matter what you do, it's got to start with an idea and then the, the rest of it is execution. And I think that the two kind of main components are pushing that vision forward and, and mitigating risk. I mean, so, so your idea starts off as this big thing and then over time you hit constraints and, and changes and, th and it gets kind of whittled down into what works. And, and that's the name, you know, the best development that doesn't at the end of the day work is, is irrelevant. I mean, if, if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter, right? Cause you can have this great idea, but you can't have, you know, three quarters of a building. You can't, I mean, it has to, at the end of the day, work. And so I think a lot of, we talked about risk earlier, a lot of what developers think about is, and, and people think about developers as being super risky. And, you know, most developers that I know are, are comfortable with risk, but they are always thinking about mitigating risk everywhere you get. Just how can we, how can we get rid of all the risk possible? And again, I think that's what drives some of the results that you see, you're like, well, why did they do that? I could almost guarantee it had something to do with risk. Um, and back to the Starbucks versus the local folks. Well, it's less risky to sign a lease with a big firm that has, you know, 10,000 stores than Justin's. Um, but anyway, so the process, um, you either typically have a, a use looking for a site or a site looking for a use. And so again, you kind of come into one of those, if you had uh, an uncle or aunt who left you, you know, a 10th of an acre somewhere, then you can say, okay, great. I've got this site. That's my first constraint. Now I need to go figure out what I can do here. How, what I, what is my investment that will have the highest and best use here? And that can mean straight up financial, or that can mean this is my value matrix. And, but at the end of the day, you're going to come up with an idea and a vision and you're going to have a site looking for a use or a use looking for a site. But either way you can go down the route of greenfield development, which is buying a piece of land or, or acquiring or getting control of a piece of land that has not been developed or kind of adaptive reuse, which is there's something there and either you're going to tear down what is there and build on top of, you're going to take what is there and just kind of rebuild the interior or you're going to add on. And again, you see all of those components all over the place. But so you have your site, you've got your vision. Um, typically, you're going to need capital. And one of the things that one of my favorite um, incremental developers says all the time is, you know, people, when they say, well, I can't be a developer, I don't have money. Um, you know, he says, well, do you have two by fours? You know, do you have drywall? Do you have the nails? It's like, no, well, go get it. capital is one of those assets that most people don't have, just like drywall, just like two by fours, just like, the, you know, an architect's degree um, or architect's license, I guess. You know, you've got to go acquire those things. And there's lots of different ways to do it. But um, first and foremost, you're going to need capital. And so typically, um, 
most people will not do a deal all cash. So you're going to figure out what what capital assets you have um, that you can get access to, and then you go look for commitments from partners or other equity investors to get the equity component. When you have enough equity, you can also go out and look for debt or get a loan. Again, that's that's typical. That's the system we've built. Is most development happens. Is, is leveraged, meaning that there's a debt component. And again, that's one of those risk components. I've got to build something. Now I've, I've committed to a lender. I've committed to partners. They're not giving me money for fun. They want a return. And so in that aspect, you've got to come up with a plan that's going to work and it's going to cover the, the commitments that you made up front financially. So you go look at capital. You say, where, where are the... Um, whether it's a for rent or for sale product, you've got to look at what is the what is the outcome environment, what is the sale potential, what is the rent that you can achieve? Because again, another saying is if, if you can't get the rents, you can't if you can't get the rents, you can't build the building. So you might say, Oh, I'm gonna build, you know, this super fancy retail space. Um, right. So you and I are gonna open a store, we're gonna be in half the building, and we're gonna have a tenant in the other half, and we're gonna charge that tenant ten thousand dollars a month. Well, if, if that's not what the market supports, we can build it with the, you know, the finest finishes and, you know, imported marble and, you know, all this stuff, but you can't force the market to give you what you want. You have to, kind of, you're kind of at the will of the market. And, and that's where I think, again, another thing that people don't understand is like developer greed comes up a lot and you say, well, you make all this money. Um, I think if developers knew that they were going to make a lot of money, that wouldn't be a problem, but other people would know that too. And that competition would quickly kind of evaporate all of that excessive profit. But I think what happens a lot is it's so hard to do the thing that we're trying to do that you and I sit and say, we're going to build this building. It's going to be retail. It's going to be 5,000 square feet. We're going to take half. We're going to rent out the other half. When we start that rent, you know, we look at our, we build our financial model and we say that rent is going to be $4,000 a month. We go, great, we build a thing. But then three years later, when we're finally done, the market could have changed. It could now be $6,000 a month. We're like, great, look at this. <laughs> we're getting double what we thought. Um, that's a good thing for us. Could be a bad thing for other people. Um, back to the externalities of now market rents on Main Street are twice what they were three years ago. Um, but it could also go the opposite direction. We could build this thing, and now what we thought was $3,000 a month in rent is 2,500. And there's literally nothing we can do to change that. We've already made the commitments. We've signed all the documents. The ship has sailed. We have a building. We've got to make do or, or deal with the ramifications. So anyway, that's the risk component. But you go out, you, you get a vision for what you want to do. You've got to check back to the zoning and um, entitlements piece. You know, zoning tells you what is allowed there? So can we can we even build a retail? Can we build a commercial building here? Can it be retail? If it is retail, what are the requirements set upon us that we have to meet? Um, if it's not kind of in the box of what's allowed, you can go through a rezoning or an adjustment to the zoning. Or um, there's a whole bunch of different processes which you don't need to get into. But you can you can go to the city and say, hey, listen, we really kind of petition the city and say we really want to do this thing. Um, you know, you as a city have said you want more. Main Street retailers, we're a Main Street retailer, you know, can we have permission to change? Um, and that's, is, that, is that a, so when you, when you go and ask the city for that, one, is there a cost built into it? And two, is it a, is it a change in law or is it a specific permit that I'm allowing for this one-time 
uh, adaptation of the land use? So it, it depends. It's a sometimes it can be changing the zoning for an area or or a district or um, sometimes if you're if you're in again we talked about the Durham County Durham City thing you know but sometimes there's this annexation where listen I want to be part of the city of Durham but my land is currently out in the county you know you have to be annexed but I want water and sewer and I want the the infrastructure and the support um, the amenities of the city and I'll pay taxes to the city so then there's this whole annexation kind it depends. It's complicated. Sometimes it's a variance and it's just asking for permission. Listen, you told me my building has to be 10 feet from the street. You know, again, if, it, if it's a, if it's a hand me down building, it's, it's just five feet and that's what it is. So I'm either going to have to spend $150,000 to move the whole building back or demolish this building. Again, you city, you community have said, we, we want to keep old original building stock. Again, I'm asking, and I know you're doing me a favor, but it's it's um, sometimes it's a variant. Sometimes it's just permission to do what you want to do. Sometimes it is changing the legal, um, the laws effectively around what you're trying to do. So it, it depends. It could be lots of things. You asked about cost. Um, typically, the cost, the direct cost to the process with the city of permits and approvals is there. Um, well, not typically. It is always there. Um, but that is a, a small piece of the cost because again, because of all the kerplunk needles that we've put through the tube, um, it's complicated. And so you need legal representation. You need sometimes engineering representation. Sometimes you need architects to draw plans, you know, and, and those are all direct costs that you, and again, back to risk of developer, you've got to pay that money regardless. These people don't work for free. And so I'm going to try and make my case to the best of my ability to get this approval from the city. I've got to come with evidence and to be able to, sh to, to share my vision. Um, and I can do it without all those things, but probably not a great idea. Um, and in that though, there's also an additional component of risk. So you can make your case and spend all, you can spend a hundred thousand dollars on plans and documents and, um, help with consultants. And then you can go through the process and it can be turned down. You don't get a refund. You don't, you know, it's so, so understanding that risk is a large part of that process because, again, if you go in and you think, well, this is likely to happen, so I feel comfortable spending the $100,000 or I have no idea, it, it's, a, it's a very different equation. Um, and so that, again, I think is a component that is often overlooked of just some places make it fairly straightforward of what is expected and what's understood, and it's, there's transparency. And sometimes it's not the flip of a coin, but you just don't know. Um, and those risks are real. And that, that's, that's money that you have to spend that you don't get back. Um, so it's complicated and it's risky. Um, so yes, there are, there are plenty of costs. And again, that goes back to how can we, if, if we say we want this as a result, what are we doing as a community to make the barrier to getting what we want? How are we simplifying the system? How are we making the system incentivize what we say we want versus incentivizing something else. Cause, cause I think, you know, what we have everywhere we go, what you have as a result of the systems you've created it may not be the result you wanted. Um, but it's the result of the system. You, you know, you go to places in Europe, they don't move buildings. They don't tear down buildings. You know, it's just in, in Charleston. Do you want to tear this down? Great. No, you cannot. We've, we've established. And so you don't get buildings torn down. It just does not happen. But there are ramifications for that. Um, and you get a place where there's a lot of 200 year old homes. Um, but you know, there's, there's other outcomes. So, so right. So you go through, you have your vision, 
you go figure out if your vision is feasible and plausible. You look at the financial feasibility, you look at the regulatory feasibility, you get through, you start talking to consultants, you start spending money on design, um, you start marketing if you're looking for tenants or if you're looking to sell. And then there's just this process of you get to a point of kind of no return. You've signed the loan documents. You know, you've promised again, if this goes, and that's, that's again, the developer's risk is I'm supposed to be the expert here. And so, I, you know, I asked you for investment money. I asked you to help provide me with the design. I asked you to sign a lease. I, you know, I'm asking all these things for people. So I'm kind of on the hook if any of those things goes sideways and that's the big risk. And, and the reason I think there is, there can be large financial returns is because the risk component is there. Um, if there were no risk, you wouldn't have those, those financial returns. Um, so anyway, that's part of the story. So then you go through the process. Once you, once you get to the point of, okay, we're going ahead, we, we've signed a contract for the land, we've, we've said we're going to buy it, or we've bought it, and we've signed the contract with a general contractor, we've got a, an agreement with the architects and all of our consultants, and then you just go. And in that process from start and green light, you know, we've got our permits, we've got our plans approved from the city, you go. And until you get to the finish line, I think of it as kind of like a, a game, I don't know, it's like running the gauntlet, but like there's a whole bunch of people running, there's two lines on either side going down, and they've all got those pool noodles, and they're just out there like whacking you with the pool noodle, and your job is to get to the end. And so you don't know what's going to happen, but as you go, all these million little things pop up. And they're this one is kind of after chains. you break ground, you're saying. After you break, I, yeah. I mean, right, right before, because there comes a point where you haven't actually done anything yet, mm. but it, it's go. And, and because you can't break ground until you've signed the contract. You check all these you, boxes. Right, and, and, but once you do, right, and then you're just, there's no going back. I mean, you've got to get it done. Um, and you've, you've guaranteed the bank that you're going to complete. I mean, that's one of the documents you sign. It's a completion guarantee. If we give you a bunch of money, you're going to do what you said you were going to do with that money. And there isn't a, a kind of you know, escape hatch. And so then from then on, you go until it's done and, and a million different little things pop up. And again, it's there, a lot of them are one in a million instances. You know, you go to dig that foundation and there's a gas line and we had our surveyors and we had our city, you know, nobody knew that this was here, but it is. And you can't just go back and say, Hey, you know, sorry, it's, what are you going to do? How are you going to get past it? Um, there, there's, there's, it's, it's crazy. But anyway, so that, that's the gauntlet to the finish line. And then as you get closer to the finish line, you're ready to, to deliver. Um, you're again, looking out to the market to see, Hey, who are, who are our tenants? Who are we going to sell this thing to? Um, you're trying to get it leased up. You're trying to get it stabilized. You're trying to close out all the agreements and transactions you, you made promises on. Um, and then hopefully you get to a point where it's stable and it's operational. And again, it's an asset that will, um, operate and, and continue to, to collect rent, or if you sell it, you sell it, and you move on to the next project. Um, but it's it's a lot of little things along the way, and it's complicated. Um, it's fun, but it's uh, it can be risky. When is the opportunity for the community at large to get involved in this process, if there is one at all? You know, I think a lot of times what happens in communities, and, and I've certainly felt this and expressed my opinion about this, yeah. where you, you know, uh, uh, 
the previous tenant closes, you know, they're going to sell the building. And then the next thing, you know, the new building, you know, there's a developer, the new building's up and you kind of, you know, it, it all happens in the blink of an eye and you're wondering, okay, well, like, I don't actually know anyone that really wants this, but like clearly the developer wanted to do it. And so they kind of just like have their way. Um, is there a, an opportunity for communities, you know, aside from the way that they, um, you know, vote, uh, city council members or like, aside from setting up the system, is there a point in the system that community members can step in and say, okay, the developers say they want to use, you know, get a permit to rezone for this, but like, we don't actually really want that. Is that just on the city to then take that feedback and say, okay, no, you can't do that because the community said we don't want it. So, so one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't gloss over the community. I mean, the number one thing is vote, like get engaged with your elected officials, have conversations with your neighbors, like figure out, participate in the conversation. You know, we, we have vote that summarize it as vote, um, and, and, and learn and educate yourself and, and ask questions. Again, if you want to ask me a question, ask me a question, um, Google things. I mean, get out there. There's a lot, most of these things are known. So, so get engaged with the community process, um, vote, you know, this is all very local politics stuff usually. So you don't have to look very far. And again, it's super hard. Like I, as someone who I think is, is highly engaged in this, I don't go to Raleigh city council meetings on a you know Tuesday night for fun. Um, it's, it, there, there are a lot of hurdles to community engagement, which are real and, and we need to address. Um, but vote number one on the, you made the comment that, I don't know if you said developers are going to get their way, but like they're going to do what they want to do. I would push back on that a little bit and say, no develop back to the, back to the, you and I, when we build our retail building, can't set the rent. We cannot force something to happen. We have, um, power in a situation you and I, and, and people do, um, we have resources that, you know, so there, there's influence for sure, but you and I can't sit across the table and say, Hey, we're going to build this retail in this location and we're going to get this rent and it's going to be awesome. And we're just going to be living the life you, we cannot make it, you cannot will it to be. So, so one thing I would say is, is I'll push back on that a little bit. No, no, if, if, if that, if that were true, um, development would be a lot easier, more people would do it and it would be less risky and less profitable and all sorts of things. So it would change drastically. But what I will say is, is just because when a developer looks back again, back to having the vision, they're looking out and guessing at the future, but the guess is about what is wanted in the future. So again, it may not be what you want, it may not be what I want, but the assumption, the guess, the, the bet is that it will be wanted in the future. And if that's not the case, the developer will fail. So again, we may not want the Starbucks, but when the Starbucks shows up, are people buying their coffee? So right, like we may sit there and say, well, that, that's not what we want, but then why is there a line out the door? Like somebody wants it, I think. Um, and so, so I, can, I think there's, there's a dynamic there that you need to be aware of. And, and um, I think that's very real. It, it, and what I think can be done about that is making sure if there is something that is wanted that is not being delivered or is not being received or, or 
if again, if there's a whole group of people out there that are saying we're getting something we don't want, or this is trending in a direction that we don't like, we're losing something that we do want. I think one thing that we can do, and I'm fully aware of all the cost and complexity and I, I don't know that it's fair, but like as a community, if we can get together and say, hey, we want to live in a Durham or a Raleigh where somebody can rent an apartment or buy a home for X, you know, or where, where 25% or 35% or 95% of our downtown is this type of store or this type of business. This is what we want. Or we love these old buildings and we don't want anybody to ever tear them down. Like there, there is community impact. And if, if the developer, if I put my developer hat back on and I'm looking out into the community and I'm seeing this is what's wanted, this is where the demand is, I'm going to flock to the demand. That is my, my business is, is building things that people want. Exactly. Right. I mean, and again, it may not be what you want. It may not be what I want. But somebody wants it or else it might get built once, right. but it doesn't get built twice. You know, nobody's going to do that. And again, I, it's, it's, I'm, and I don't know the answer, but if we as a community could get together and cast a community vision to say, again, I want 50% of Main Street to be local retailers. And right now we're at 60% or 40% and it's trending in the wrong direction. Get together with your 10 best friends and say, what are we doing where is the roadblock? Where is the, the, the pressure that's pushing these folks away? Or, or the change, what's happening that's, that's driving this? Because again, developers are in the business of meeting demand. And if we can get together, and I put, you know, we can get together as a community and say, this is what we want, they'll flock to it. And you never see that. You, you see plenty of instances where developer has an idea, community says, we don't want it. But I, I, I would love to figure out how can we Community, just, this neighborhood says, listen, we want you to build, we want a grocery store here. We want food. I want to be able to walk to a grocery store or bike. This is what we want. And then you say, well, what's stopping that from happening? And again, if you ask that question, well, the average, you know, Harris Teeter needs this many rooftops within a, you know, one mile radius before they will sign a lease for a place. Do we have that? No. How can we get that? You know, or, or if it's not a Harris Teeter, it's a small local, you know, bodega type store. Is that legal today? No? Okay. What can we do to, you know, because there's a big, maybe the demand is there, but it's not legal. You're not just straight up not allowed to build it. And then you say, okay, what can we do? Because again, developers are, are beholden to the community and beholden to demand. Um, and elected officials are beholden to the community and beholden to demand. And so again, I, I think it's, um, it's easy to look out and say, well, we don't have power as a community um, but man, I, th I think we could do a world of good if we got together and say, listen, I, we're telling you, this is what we want. You, nobody has to guess that there is no guess. This is what we want. And we're going to, we're going to break down barriers that are keeping that from happening. Um, I don't know if that's the answer, but it seems, seems pretty cool and exciting to me. Yeah. There is a certain amount of community engagement that I, that often doesn't happen. And I'm 110% guilty of this where I see something I don't like and my first instinct is to get on Twitter and say, I don't like this and I tag all the people, you know, the the different accounts that I feel have, um, you know, slighted me in some way and say, hey, this, this is whack, I don't like this. Um, but then the follow-up doesn't ever happen. It's not like, hey, I don't like this. I'm gonna make sure that I come to the next city council meeting and address the council and say, hey, 
you know, I've been talking to my neighbors and we've all decided that like this project that has been proposed is not what our community needs. Um, you know, what can we do to yeah. fix that? Uh, and so you're right to, to say that, you know, the developers are going to places um, where, you know, where they are wanted in, in mm-hmm. sort of the, well, maybe not even in the abstract, but, you know, they're going to build things that are, in demand. are going to, one, be viable for them, and two, you know, be places where people patron. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think about that, like, a lot of the places that get built, I think, uh, somebody on Reddit tried to <laughs> call me out on this that, you know, I, even if there are places uh, that I maybe wasn't a fan of their development at first, like I certainly go into their building and, you know, eat at their restaurants and, you know, buy things from their retail stores. And so, uh, you know, I'm only so principled in that regard. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the, the follow through on saying, okay, we do or don't want these things, how do we manifest them through the process that's available to us is maybe where, um, you know, a, a lot of us fall short. And, and I, and it's not to say that there aren't one people out there trying two that people don't have crazy lives that they're living. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not thinking about showing up at city council meeting when they're like, I got to work to pay off rent or student mm-hmm. debt or whatever. Um, so I, I absolutely get that. But um, there is a, an amount of coalition building that I think would really help strengthen our communities to get more of what we want from development. And, and I would I would charge people, and again, I'm, I'm very much aware of those dynamics too, of like, Jed, you're sitting here putting it on the community to show up and do all this work collectively. And that, that's a huge ask. But maybe not collectively, I mean, yes, collectively, but also individually. Like, instead of saying... Hey developer, hey you, you know, I think what you're doing is whack, you know. If if I came up to you and said, I don't like that shirt, I think that shirt is whack, are you gonna be receptive to me at all? Probably not. Probably not. If I come up to you and said, Tell me why you picked that shirt. Now I'm now we're in a conversation, now we have an engagement, now we're talking. If you go up and say, Why is it that you're building, you know, again, in my world, the, the, I'm in I'm in this neighborhood, and this neighborhood is saying this is not what we want. We don't want this. And then you're here building this thing that we don't want. Why is it that you're doing that? What what is it that is that is leading you in that direction? And, and ask the question. Well, it's you know you say you want smaller units. You say you want more of like these are the hurdles. These are the barriers that are in my place in, in my way to do that thing. And this is the path of least resistance. And I have, again, risk. I have a family to feed. I, there's all these things. I'm trying to mitigate risk. So you're asking me to go one way or the other. You know, it's the, it's the Robert Frost, I guess, path less traveled. You know, but that to me is an interesting question of what's stopping you from, to me, I'm hearing all this demand. And, and you're a developer. You, you are responsive to demand. Why aren't you responsive to this demand? And there's, there's probably some answers there that may surprise people. Yeah, I think about this with housing I've been having more conversations with folks around affordable housing. And, and one of the things that I've learned that definitely reshaped the way that I think about what's happening in this area is that, uh, you know, the lack of housing, uh, the lack of supply mm-hmm. um, has created this huge um, like absence of certain types of housing. And so folks who would otherwise, you know, buy 
this type of home and this neighborhood are like, okay, well, that doesn't exist for me, so I'm going to go into this neighborhood and buy this type of home and either, you know, flip it or do whatever. Um, and it changes the dynamic um, of a community. And then a lot of folks see that and they're like, ah, this is so terrible. Uh, you know, folks are coming in here and flipping homes and, mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, we also, at least I know I've been a part of this course, have said for a long time, like, every time a new apartment building goes up in downtown Durham, I'm like, that's whack. You know, I don't want any more. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not in my downtown and, uh, not, you know, not making those, uh, not making the correlation between, okay, if I say I want this neighborhood to be more affordable, then I need to create more housing for the people who would otherwise, you know, take that housing as opposed to gentrifying yeah. this neighborhood. And, um, and you know, those are the uh, externalities that mm -hmm. we've been talking about throughout this uh, conversation. And it's, um, you know, and, and unf I don't know if it's unfortunate, but there, it's a complex system. And you, uh, I'm saying, <laughs> I realize like every time I'm about to say something, it's me reflecting on my own thought. I'm like saying it out loud so that I will hear it, uh, that you are not going to get everything that you want in uh, the growth of a city. Um, you know, there's a, um, yeah, there are all these these places where, yeah, I may not love that this thing is happening, but in the bigger picture, like it will actually give me 90% of what I want in my community. And so that's the, the give and take that we have to have sometimes. And it, it's tough, you know, for us, certain number of folks in Durham, we're used to it being one way and it's rapidly changing into this other way. And it doesn't mean that we can't still have the things that we want. It just means that they will look slightly different than they yeah. did before. And, um, you know, the idea that, you know, like it's unaffordable to live downtown. It's like, well, you couldn't even really live downtown 10 years. You know, there were no places to live. Like those apartments didn't exist. There were hotels and a couple like small, you know, um, privately owned apartments, but you know, there was no yeah. downtown. So you, it, it, you can't say that it was affordable cause it didn't exist. Um, and so just trying to, yeah, reframe the conversation a little bit, realizing you can't always, you know, get everything that you want. And sometimes, you know, uh, giving away a little bit in some area actually gives you more of what you want in another and understanding that, you know, complex system, but sort of trying to understand it can help build a better attitude towards community development and also empower people to take more action and feel like they can have an impact on what's happening around them. Well, that's, I mean, you bring up a good point. If, if change is scary and I, I am not a fan of change, change scares me. Um, but it's also, it's really hard to see the future and predict what that's going to look like as, as a citizen, as someone around town. And then you can, I think it's, it's often human nature to like, you see the downside much more clearly back to our little retail example of like, well, this could be some store that I don't like, but also it could be this awesome little thing that, you know, and if you, if we could run the numbers and like how many of those, how many of those stores, because if the community really doesn't like that store, is it going to stay in business? If there's no demand for that thing, like, right, you could open it up, but you're going to fail. And, and so again, why is it that in, in these places and these cities and these communities, 
you find a lot of coffee shops and a lot of record store and a lot of, you know, local things in smaller places in near where their customers are. Cause that's most likely what's going to happen. Could other things happen? Absolutely. Um, but it's, it's hard to see the future for anybody. Change is scary. Um, and right, the, the, the dynamics of, of development and affordability, like development, and this is a whole other, we don't even need to get into it, but like development happens on the margin, meaning that, that as soon as a development will happen when there's demand for it and kind of not before, you can't really proceed the demand. You can come later on, but again, in, in neighborhoods where you see, you know, home prices escalating in, in huge ways, that's because there is this pent up demand and again, you might not like it. Maybe the homeowner likes it. Like, okay, if I own a house and my home goes up 20% in value per year, that's good for me. But what that signals to me is that's a catastrophe because that just means the demand is so much higher than supply. And if we as a community say we want to grow, which again, if we polled everybody and said, do we want to grow as Durham, as the Triangle, as Raleigh, wherever, and we say yes, then if we're also not making spaces for those people, then we're going to have a problem. And, and that's, I think, what we're seeing. We, we've made this, this great place, and we, we've, we've instigated all of this growth, but we haven't kept up with the demand. And again, I don't like, you know, like a $2,000 apartment or a $3,000 apartment or this, you know, high-rise. But, but if you think about it, in, in, a, in a development, in a dense development, a 300-unit apartment complex, if they are super-duper expensive, if you didn't have that thing, those 300 households would still go somewhere. And, and again, as a community, have we gotten together and say, well, we would rather have that happen on three acres or 10 acres or 15 acres, or would you rather have 300 households on 300 acres? Because those have different outcomes. And again, the economics of it, the, if you're talking at the margin and you're talking to people who can afford to live anywhere or in lots of places, they're probably going to find a solution. Um, but we've got to balance that and figure out again, what's the goal? What are we trying to achieve? We want to make it affordable to live here. We want to have local commercial ownership. We want to have people have the option to buy. And again, a, a two by four costs what a two by four costs. The developer, the contractor, nobody can change it. If we could will two by fours to change in price, we would. But so that means that a, a building, a home has a cost. And so if you're saying we as a community want more $150,000 homes, either you're going to have to find a market solution that meets that need. And in today's environment, that's probably going to be small, probably going to not take up a lot of land because land is expensive. And again, land is, land is just land. It's expensive because there's more people that want it than have it. The demand, there's a demand imbalance. But so if, if that's not an acceptable solution, then you've got to get into the subsidy conversation. And then you say, well, are, who's going to, are we going to pay for that? You and me going to pitch in for that? And if the answer is yes, then great, let's do it. If the answer is no, I don't want to pitch in for that. But I also don't want to change the rules so that you can have small homes on tiny, you know. Then we sit and we get the status quo and things get worse. I really appreciate everything that you shared. I, I realized that you mentioned this at the top that, you know, we could talk about any of these things uh, you know, ad nauseum. And, and I would love to, to have you come back and, and talk more uh, about development and, and mm -hmm. particularly how like communities can get more involved in the development process. Um, but I would love to give space uh, for you to talk about some of the work that you're doing now uh, and how people, uh, you know, you, t you said that people can ask you questions. Mm -hmm. um, you do have a, a newsletter that you write. 
um, a podcast of your own as well. So talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing now and uh, and how people can engage with you. Sure. So um, I guess the alias or moniker is Oak City CRE. So O-A-K-C-I-T-Y-C-R-E for commercial real estate. Um, if you go to oakcitycre.com, that's my website. You can find me on Oak City CRE uh, at Twitter, at Oak City CRE on Twitter. Um, to me, you know, those again are all avenues. I, I think the, I've always focused on a very small geographic footprint of Raleigh or the triangle. And again, in my neighborhood and in my city and in, in my community, I think that's where one, the, the changes impact me most and my kids and, you know, my family and you. And, and so I think, but that's also where we have the most ability to impact change um, kind of starts in your own backyard thing. So I love having conversations. I love asking questions, love answering questions. Um, although people, yeah, it, it's, it's usually people, me asking questions. So I love to ask questions. If you want to engage, Twitter's the best place to find me or the website. Um, the top five is my weekly newsletter that goes out on Tuesdays. And again, that's just kind of five articles or links or pieces of content related to development in Raleigh. So if you're interested in learning about development in Raleigh, check out oakcitycre.com and there's a newsletter tab at the top. Um, but really, I mean, again, and, and the, the biggest thing, the call to action to folks, if you're listening to this and you have a question about development, about real estate, about land use, um, you know, ask somebody, if you want to ask me, ask me, you know, oakcitycre at gmail.com is the email. It's all Oak City across everything, but um, oakcitycre. So ask the question, and again, if you want to do a follow-up episode, we can have a we can have you know people submit conversations and questions. But um, engage in the conversation, participate, um, educate yourself. And again, I think in this most of the most of the questions have answers. There there are very few things that we talk about in land use that that don't have an answer. Um, so that would be my call to action. Uh, ask a question. I'm happy to answer it. Um, Twitter is the best place to find me. I spend too much time on Twitter. Um, if you, if you engage with me on Twitter, you'll probably get some questions thrown back at you because I love asking questions because I love finding out what the answers are. Um, and again, so much of this is subjective. It's, it's opinions. And this is, you know, I think this is better than that thing. And you think that thing's better than this thing. And that to me is, is the tension, um, of community and of cities. And I, I think, um, other people have said it better than me, but like the whole purpose of a lot of the purpose of cities is congestion, right? It's, it's bringing people close together so that you can, sit in a room and record a podcast or sit in a coffee shop and have an idea and hatch a plan and start a business or, or start a relationship or a friend, you know, being around people is a, is a positive most of the time and kind of net, uh, there's some negatives, there's some tension, but you know, um, I think a lot about in land use and in life, a lot of the things that we discuss are, are not problems to be solved, but tensions to be managed. Because again, right. It's not, black and white and cut and dry. If we say no to that big apartment building, you know, does that have a, are those people going to go someplace? Sure. If we make development super duper hard here, are those people coming out of school who are really smart and driven and care about Durham or Raleigh? Are they going to pick a different path? Are they going to go into some other industry? Um, and so again, it's, it's just attention to be managed. There, there is no right answer. There is no complete solution that it's just, this is the silver bullet that's going to make it done. But I think if as a community, we can get together and point out to a North star and say, this is where we want to go. These are the, this is the result that we want to see. Let's build a system that pushes us towards that result instead of away. Um, and that doesn't happen without engagement, without getting involved, getting dirty. Um, 
And so, yeah, so anyway, happy to answer questions. I love talking about this stuff. This is my favorite thing in the world. So thank you for the time to talk about that. Um, if you got questions, shout out. Yeah, I, I love that we're ending on this idea of community engagement. Uh, that sentiment is how Durham, I think, was built. And the way that we've uh, created the value system that we have is through community engagement. And so I hope that folks uh, new and old to Durham return to that sentiment of community engagement. Now, obviously, the pandemic had created some um, barriers for us mm -hmm. to engage with one another, at least in person. Um, but yeah, that community engagement piece is is really important, which, you know, it's how all of these tensions that you mentioned um, will uh, solve themselves mm -hmm. or at least become, uh, you know, we'll be able to, to work through them uh, together. So yes, please uh, vote, get out, talk to your community members, uh, talk to your city council folks. If you have the time, yeah. go to the meetings, they do stream them. Um, there are ways to, to plug in. Um, so definitely take the time to do that if these types of issues um, are important to you. Um, and, and thanks for listening to the show. This has been another episode of the Buddy Ruski Show. I'm really excited uh, for you all to continue to hear these conversations. They're uh, wonderful for me. I learned so much doing this. So that's part of the reason I do it. And I hope you do too. Um, if you know other folks that uh, could, could get something out of this content, please share the podcast. Um, you don't even have to post it on your social media feed. You can just like send a text with the link. Um, that kind of peer-to-peer uh, -peer sharing is, is something that I actually really love to hear uh, from folks. So uh, yeah, share it out if you know someone that would appreciate it. Um, you can follow me at Buddy Ruski pretty much anywhere, uh, buddyruska.com. I have a, a website as well. Do some writing, newsletters there. You can find the podcast there and all the links and everything. So check that out and uh, and we'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening.